Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, as 2018 begins, unfortunately, there appears to be no end in sight to this ongoing opioid addiction crisis that's been plaguing Canada the last couple of years. Literally thousands have died. Now, I think there's a perception, even though we saw a poll the other day, we had a surprising number of Canadians say they know someone who's dealing with an opioid addiction. I think there's still a perception that, hey, I don't do heroin. I'm not some druggie who's out looking to score some cool drugs this weekend to, to go get high and party. Uh, that's that's what those people do. And that's their problem then. I, I think, unfortunately, there's that perception. There's that stigma around it. The people who are addicted put themselves in that position because they made an immoral choice to do drugs. But I think that's a real misrepresentation of this crisis. I mean, I think it it misses the point when it comes to the nature of addiction. But it also misses a key component of this crisis. For example, Alberta Health reported recently uh, that of the Albertans who had overdosed on fentanyl in 2016, about 60% of them had received a prescription for an opioid within a year of their death. So that's a much different kind of situation. You don't know if you're going to encounter, deal with the serious injury that's going to require painkillers. You don't know how you're going to react to an opioid-based painkiller, whether that use is going to become a dependency, whether that dependency is going to become an addiction. So can we really point a finger at those who are dealing with that, and especially if that's the path that they were on in the first place? So, yeah, a big part of this problem is stemmed from maybe what's an over-prescription of potentially addictive opioids. The Alberta College of Physicians and Surgeons is now acknowledging this, coming out and saying that, yeah, doctors did help create this opioid crisis and must now help solve it. Now, they published a letter this week noting that while physicians didn't set out to do harm in the first place, but the overprescribing of opioid painkillers has contributed to the situation we're now in. How important is that acknowledgement and how much of a component is this problem in this broader crisis? Joining us on the line, very pleased to welcome back to the program, Dr. Hakeek Varani, as a public health and preventative medicine and addiction medicine expert at the University of Alberta, also an assistant clinical professor. Dr. Varani, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's good to be with you, Rob. All right, so what do you make of the um, the statement this week from the College of Physicians and Surgeons? Well, it's it's nice to see um, that the profession continues to take responsibility for our role in, in creating this problem. And, you know, the College of Physicians and Surgeons here has, um, uh, has been a leader, I think, in recognizing this problem since over a dozen years ago when, um, when they were aching for attention from public health 
um, to address what, what appeared to be uh, an increasing problem with prescription drugs, particularly opioids causing harms, including death. Um, but the, the problem has changed quite a bit um, since then. And, and one of the things that, uh, that Dr. McLeod writes in his letter is that, you know, the illicit drug market is more toxic than it's ever been before. And that context is critical to um, how we address this situation today, as opposed to what we might have done in the early 2000s. Right. And as I alluded to, I mean, the, the letter points out, and I think people can see this point, doctors weren't uh, intending to cause harm. I mean, it's quite the opposite. If someone's dealing with pain, we want to help them manage that. And obviously, these, these kinds of painkillers uh, help to that end. Um, so how did, how did we get into this situation? Because pain, treating pain, isn't new. No, treating pain isn't new. And it's also not new that doctors do harm without intending to do harm, right? We do that in all sorts of things, um, particularly when we, when we use interventions that are not based on sound evidence. And that's, I think, the genesis of this problem was that, you know, we were encouraged to prescribe opioids to treat all sorts of chronic pain conditions where there was an absence that prescribing of evidence that prescribing opioids chronically for a whole host of, you know, non-cancer um, pain conditions was good for patients. Um, but there is no such evidence to, to demonstrate that this is a, a wise, safe, and effective thing to do in terms of, um, in terms of people's pain, but also in terms of quality of life. And I think that us playing fast and loose with those drugs um, created a demand for, um, for opioids that's now being met by more toxic, illicit bootlegs. What about the makers of these drugs? What, what role do they, do they play? Well, in the United States, um, uh, Purdue, which is a pharmaceutical company that introduced with great fanfare um, OxyContin, um, has faced a number of substantial fines. But I think in the broad scheme of things, kind of the cost of doing business as a pharmaceutical company, um, you know, they, uh, one might say hijacked medical education um, to, to encourage physicians to prescribe these drugs. Um, without without knowing what the um, what the impact would be to public health, but with knowing that some of the advertised benefits of these drugs um, were simply untrue. So, for example, with OxyContin, you know, the indication was uh, to us that this was a uh, non-addictive medication, um, that it was a medication that, because of its formulation, could act over long periods of time. Patients would only need to take them twice a day, and that doses wouldn't rapidly escalate like they did with other short-acting opioids. And none of those claims were true. Uh, so I think, you know, part of this is that um, a ruse has been perpetrated on, on the North American public and on, on medicine. But, um, you know, I think dwelling on that, on that problem is not going to get us further along the lines of, this, uh, of, of taming this crisis. Um, but we do have good evidence that certain public health interventions will make a difference. Right. And so let's talk about that. I mean, just first of all, too, before we move along, I mean, when we look at the role then that maybe overprescribing these these drugs played in creating this crisis, do, do we have any idea as to to what extent? It's tough to know. We don't do good surveillance on this as um, public health authorities in Canada. It would be really good to know what proportion of these um, uh, these deaths um, were addiction versus um, recreational use versus prescribed use of opioids. It would be good to know what proportion of people with addiction started off with prescription medications. Um, it would be good to know what proportion of people who have addiction 
um, seek out treatment for addiction and what percent are retained in that, in that treatment. These are all really important indicators that we don't have a good handle on. Um, but what I can say is that in clinical practice, we certainly continue to have patients who are addicted to opioid medications that started with pharmaceutical drugs. Um, but we have an increasing proportion of people who get addicted to opioids um, when their recreational use uh, that started it all was illicit bootleg fentanyl. That's very, very scary. Well, yeah, and I mean, if we were somehow able to magically take fentanyl out of the equation, I mean, we'd be dealing with a much different kind of situation, right? We would, um, but, you know, these, are, these things are very, very much interrelated. Um, yeah. And, you know, we saw uh, across Canada in 2016, some provinces saw a decrease in, um, in opioid prescribing. Um, Dr. McLeod in his op-ed described an even greater decrease in opioid prescribing in Alberta in 2017. But um, it's striking that even in those provinces where there have been great efforts to reduce the amount of opioids prescribed in the population, we see an increase in opioid overdose deaths, um, which is not what you would have expected in the early 2000s when the amount of opioids prescribed tracked very parallel to the number of deaths from opioids. And now it seems like that relationship has turned itself around. And that, I think, has everything to do with how interrelated the supply is. The less prescribed opioids that there are available, it appears that the greater the demand becomes for, for illicit supply. And Dr. McLeod talks about that in the op-ed, which I think is encouraging, um, that the regulator recognizes the interrelationship between these things. Well, I mean, what we have now is a high level of addiction, but obviously a disturbingly high number of fatalities. Uh, if we could somehow reduce the latter, we'd still have a problem, but it would be much preferable to, to what we have at the moment. So that's, that's an incredibly important point. Um, one is that we think that addiction might have increased, but we don't do good enough surveillance to tell, to tell ourselves um, confidently that, uh, that the number of people addicted to drugs has gone up. Um, but we do know that the number of people who die from using substances prescribed and unprescribed has gone up. Um, the other thing I think that, that you point out is that, you know, addiction is a problem that has uh, a lot to do with factors other than substances. Um, and we know that people who are at the wrong end of some structural inequities like racism and sexism and, and classism um, are, are they, they suffer more of the downsides of substance use than anybody else. I mean, the, the large, largest proportion of the Canadian population uses some substance, whether legal or illegal. But the people who are hurt most by those substances um, are people who are hurt most by most, uh, most other factors and most other hazards. And, you know, we really do need to, um, to deal with those pervasive issues of inequity um, in, in North America in order to make headway on a... On a addiction problem in total. Right. And, and mental health issues as well, right? I mean, that, that seems to be a big contributing factor. And, course, you know, people course, obviously yeah. looking then to um, ease that kind of pain or, or to escape that, that day-to-day reality, right? You're right. And, you know, we, we do as physicians um, have, a, uh, have a somewhat artificial way of, of categorizing pain. You know, we talk about pain with diagnostic imaging findings or pain with some other chronic condition that explains the pain. Um, but those are kind of artificial, as I said. People, people use opioids for all kinds of pain, and they work for all kinds of pain. The downside is, is that they can also cause harm in the meantime, and only one of those harms is addiction. I mean, if you take a look at the, um, the last surveillance report from Alberta Health, 
particularly at um, the population who has died from opioids other than fentanyl. Um, there are certainly dozens of people um, who are, you know, in older age groups that would not have ha- that that likely did not have addiction and died from opioids anyway. Um, so this isn't just a question about addiction. It's not just a question about mental health. It's not just a question about structural inequities. It also has to do with some basic hazards that um, carry risks that we're not mitigating well. Well, such as. Well, so for example, uh, somebody, uh, you know, somebody in their in their late sixties um, has a, a minor injury that causes, you know, an amount of perceived pain, right. but also is on some sedative medications because they have trouble sleeping. Um, is also on some other psychotropic medications for some other um, psychiatric condition or psychiatric symptoms, we add an opioid on and their risk for uh, death related to the mixture of those medications goes way up in spite of the fact that they're religiously taking those medications out of their blister pack that their pharmacist um, gives to them once a week or once a month. Um, that's not somebody who is at fault for, um, for having an adverse outcome from, from a medication. But I would say at the same time that, you know, you've got patients who you wouldn't think stereotypically would suffer from a substance use condition, but become very dependent on these medications. Um, That's a real health condition. And to say that, you know, this is something that is a a matter of willpower or they've just been weak and they're dependent on these medications because of some, you know, moral flaw or a a problem with their character Mm -hmm. um, is just just unfair and untrue. All right. Well, uh, we've taken a number of steps, and, and we've been hearing today, uh, for example, about the uh, supervised consumption site of the Sheldon Jumier Center here in Calgary. There, there are sites set up in Edmonton. Uh, naloxone is much more widely available now, so we're, we're taking some steps to try to get a handle on this. What more do we need to be doing, in your view? Well, there are certainly things that we should be doing more, but the first thing I would say is that everything that we're doing from a public health perspective needs to be done faster. Um, the illicit drug market uh, is able to adapt a lot more quickly than we've shown we're able to, um, and that comes with serious risks. Um, and we've seen that with not only bootleg fentanyls, but also fentanyl analogs that are likely more dangerous than the fentanyls that we were seeing in you know, 2013, 14, 15. We're starting to see an increased proportion of fentanyl analogs that are, are likely more toxic. Um, but in addition to all of those things, improved access to treatment, um, improved access to take-home naloxone, improved access to a whole host of harm reduction interventions like the ones that you've described and some others. Um, I think if we're going to see ourselves our way out of this problem, we really do need to push forward with smarter drug policy where um, substances are decriminalized. The incentives for the black market um, to bring in more toxic opioids is that they're easier to traffic. Um, and easier to traffic drugs um, are, you know, um, are something that drug traffickers um, look to because of drug policy. And if we um, if we take that issue out of the equation, uh, then there would be less of an incentive to to create the toxic market that we see now. So, you know, and that's that's uh, an intervention that was seen to have great success in Portugal. Um, and and there's been a lot of reporting on um, on the success that Portugal has seen exactly for that reason. I mean, they were in a not the same situation, a similar situation um, where cheap uh, heroin from Afghanistan and Pakistan was coming into into Portugal, and a change in drug policy is what turned that around, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we we really do need to um, 
uh, to move that way. And I think that the poll from Angus Reid this week demonstrated that Canadians are a lot more progressive than we give ourselves credit for. And, you know, with two-thirds supporting supervised injection services, um, I think that we would be pleasantly surprised at what proportion of Canadians are thoughtful about what drug policies would not only pr- uh, reduce the harms from substances, but actually also reduce the number of people who are dependent on them or suffer from an addiction. Yeah, well, some great points. Dr. Varani, we'll leave it there. I uh, appreciate the insight as always. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here. Yeah, good to talk to you, Rob. All right, likewise, Dr. Keith Varani, uh, public health preventive medicine uh, and addiction medicine expert at the University of Alberta. 974-8255 is the number here, 974-TALK. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.